Welcome to Hort Culture, where a group of extension professionals and plant people talk about the business, production, and joy of planting seeds and helping them grow. Join us as we explore the culture of horticulture. I'm not going to lie, I don't get sick of hearing myself say the intro. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Horticulture. Job. I just, I'm so impressed I can sound so, oh, you know, professional. It's very so. alluring. Oh, yes. Welcome to Horticulture. I feel invited how, into your culture. How's everybody a- doing today? How's everybody Don't feeling? Right. Uh, I made I a lot amazing. of hand gestures right now. Nobody doing, just saw that. But. We're going to have to do a video just so we capture all of this extra goodness. We're, we're, we're on it a lot today, of y'all. We're on it. Built-in <laughs> ASMR. Yeah. So yes, I have a question for you, Alexis. Is it a good oh, question or a stupid to, question? It's a dumb question. Of course. Uh, well, it could be a Bring dumb it. question. <laughs> could you, I mean, what is the distinct that you've got interplanting, companion planting, permaculture guilds? Are these the same thing? Are these uh, different things? I, I would throw in living mulch. Mm, you would. You would. That's, that's a just podcast. a euphemism oh, for gosh. weeds, Brett. I mean, we're not judging your weedy garden. You can call it living mulch if you want. That's fine. Living mulch till I go in with the roundup. <laughs> That's it. The non-selective Head broad mulch. spectrum. Well, so kind of yes and no. I think they're. I think the the basic action of all of them are pretty much the same, but the way we think about those plants, at least in my brain, is so a little bit interplanting, different. companion planting. Yeah. And those like are the, the two that I really yeah, have to think about concept and permaculture, which might be more perennial kind of focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, we should do we should do some permaculture episodes. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. And I think well, and I think a lot of the things we talk about are all permaculture basics, but like thinking of bringing all of these together into one permaculture mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, would be neat. So. So yeah, I think if we feel like kind of thinking about interplanting versus companion planting, Ray, jump in here. But the way I think of interplanting is more spatial. So using interplanting as a way to maximize your space by putting as many crops in there as you can, as well as keeping an area, a space like weed free is kind of how I think about interplanting versus Mm -hmm. companion planting is more how do those plants mutually benefit each other as far mm-hmm. as like do is there nitrogen fixation you know can you know we think about the three sisters of uh you know beans corns and pumpkins or melons or whatever growing together using each other as a structure yeah. right um and you know or or even insect repelling insects you know you always hear about marigolds which i have a whole thing about marigolds but yeah you know, trap cropping so it, it's kind of a to me, when I speak about them and the, the way the social aspect, the culture of horticulture, so to speak, uh, is that companion planting is more about the mutually beneficial versus interplanting. They don't necessarily help each other in either way, but we're they don't hurt each other either, and we're putting them all into one space together. Is that does that yeah, feel okay to yeah. everybody else? Sure. Yeah, and uh, our discussion today, you know, I was trying to think of the scale of our discussion because so much of what we do involves like big and little scales Mm -hmm. and medium scales. Probably when we have a discussion on both companion planting and everything else along with that intercropping, some of that may be more common on a smaller scale in smaller spaces, but that's not to say that on a medium and large scale that you don't see some of the same concepts Mm -hmm. of uh, interplanting and uh, 
specifically companion planting. Mm -hmm. I see that on a little bit larger commercial scale every now and again. Mm -hmm. But more often I see that on a small scale. Do you guys observe that too, like in smaller spaces? I think it de- depends on the nature of it. So uh, could yeah. you could you could I clarify real quick or ask? So you gave examples the the three sisters and the mm-hmm. uh, marigolds and tomatoes. Those those were you were saying those were examples of companion planting. Is that right? Right, right. So can you give me some like not necessarily crop pairings, but just examples of what interplanting might look like species wise? Mm-hmm. So interplanting would be you know. Remember, we're thinking more spatially about this. So cramming as many plants as we can into a space just so we get more out of that space and or for for weed control in that space. So one really good one is like lettuce, like a leaf lettuce uh, underneath your tomato. So you plant your tomato down the middle of the row and on either side of that tomato, we plant a shallow rooted lettuce early in the season that is done by the time that tomato comes out and shades out that planting. For a weed pressure one, one I'm personally looking into is using radishes, which are a root crop. They're very fast growing um, and intermixing them with a very slow growing crop. And so you're covering the soil with something that's easy to take out. You know, maybe you do sell that uh, or maybe you just use it almost like a cover crop, but you can pull that, that out. You can probably get a couple successions of it and you're keeping weeds from building up until those slow growing plants have filled in that canopy to prevent weed pressure. Gotcha. So in, th- in that case, you're you're u- using that slower th- or that faster thing to cover the mm-hmm. soil so that you don't have to weed in between. So if I'm imagining my my garden mm-hmm. and I've got tomato plants and everywhere around it is completely bare ground, if I wanted to interplant, I would think about coming in and putting something else down that's going to mm-hmm. also be growing right next to it. So I'm not going right. to have my all my tomato plants out there by themselves, I'm going to have other stuff planted right up against it or in the rows in between or wherever. Is that is that kind of what you're... Yeah, something that's gotcha. not going to damage it. You're not going to you know, have trouble harvesting. Uh, you're essentially just... It's a way to think of time, kind of time and space. Yeah, time in that aspect of maybe you're harvesting before your other crop comes into you know, fruition or whatever. So is there is there a difference here from cover cropping? So cover cropping is usually, Ray, please jump in, but cover cropping is usually like um, something that we could be using it for weed pressure, but we're not putting our crop in with it typically. So it's something more- It could be a smother crop or just for like organic amendment, like to increase your soil organic Right. We're incorporating it and then- Stabilization. Right. Or, and then coming in with our main crop, they're not happening at the same time in the same Mm -hmm. space, I should say. So sometimes people will put like a clover in their alleyways between their tomato rows because it's easier to walk in, but, and clover also is a nitrogen fixer. So in theory, it becomes more available to those tomatoes, but those tomatoes themselves are in plastic. And so that's not exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about plants sharing the same space with interplanting. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I think it's something that where it's like right on the boundary I was thinking of is somebody who plants a cover crop and then does like a crimping sort of thing and mm-hmm. uses that mostly done plant as like a mulch to plant. A living in. mulch. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like in that boundary, like a lot of these things, you know, there's these edge cases where it's all a Venn diagram, and sometimes you get something that's kind of a little bit of both. 
Yeah. yeah Let's face I'm, it, Josh. Horticulture is an edge case here in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're all we about. Edge. We are living on the edge and being unique. Okay, that's that's where we that's where we're at. So, yeah, that's a good point, Josh. Because I think that that kind of practice is done at a very large scale. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I have seen three thousand acres of of watermelon pumpkins planted into a crimped rye or wheat mm-hmm. cover crop. And, and I mean, in, in principle, you know, we have terms to dif- differentiate things, but in general, we're trying to keep the soil covered, reduce erosion loss, Im- improve, you know, uh, Water soil organic matter, organic matter. Yep. But we're also in trying to keep that soil cool in the, in some cases too. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we're doing it all at the same time and they're both living side by side. <laughs> is that is that right? So half the battle of this discussion, you all, is just clarifying. And you know, we sometimes throw these terms in together, but uh, I'm glad you guys are differentiating out the terms because interplanting, companion planting, living mulches, all of this, you know, sort of ties in together. But they have their own unique little uh, caveats, and it really boils down to, well, what's your objectives for undertaking these things? And that's, you know, the rest will take care of itself is based on your objectives. And I like to stress particularly with like, uh, not to pick on companion planting, but, you know, there's lots of information uh, online about, um, you know, different methods, different plants and companion plantings and doing things like either attracting beneficial insects or repelling the not so desirable insects. But, you know, that doesn't take the place of scouting. And even if you do a good job setting up your companion planting, that may not take care of all of your issues in any given year. Because I find that with companion planting and concepts like that, that it's highly variable. It it just varies a great deal from person to person. They do little things that they they might not even understand they're doing. Or it may, it definitely varies from area to area and year to year based on pest pressure and weather. Depends on how well something like companion planting works, you know, and the goals, the reason that you're doing that, that practice. And there's lots of different practices, lots of different reasons you would do those practices. Can we, can we tease out the insect repellent for companion planting as like using companion planting as insect repellent is a burr in my butt. Um, so oh, here we go. I get this question a lot, and I know there's there's probably at least a couple people listening that are like are ready to shut this off because I said Uh-oh. that because they might use it and it works for them and that's great. But I think of it less as a repellent, like planting a marigold next to you know my cabbage plant for cabbage loopers. I don't think of the marigold as pre- repelling that cabbage looper and it sees that marigold and it goes oop and it turns around and flies away. I think of it more as a trap crop. And so I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just thinking reframe the way, reframe your brain around how this Be works. realistic about your expectations. Trap so, crop, uh, so, trap crop. Can you, can you crop, expand yeah. on that for me? That's yes. like a trap so, house, right? Or yeah, that's yeah sort of. Like so, the drum tracks? Trap? She's going to start talking about nasturtiums, I guarantee. <laughs> Here we go. Well, nasturtiums are up there. I was actually going to talk about bell peppers and sunflowers. Okay. Go so off. this is something that we see in both large and small operations. Uh, and we've I, I'm bringing this up because it was a recent research project um, at UK in the entomology department. So you have all your bell peppers uh, in a plot, right? A square. 
of bell peppers. Uh, and what they did was a few feet out from that, you know, enough to get, you know, their implements through or whatever it is. So it might be 20 feet, whatever. They planted a box of sunflowers around that. And the purpose was, so stink bugs are a really big pre- uh, problem for bell peppers. Stink bugs love them some sunflowers a lot more than bell peppers. So it's like, you know, trying to tell a two-year-old that, you know, to eat the broccoli instead of eating the chicken nugget, right? They're going to eat the chicken nugget first. So the stink bugs then go to the sunflowers and they can either, they'll stay in the sunflowers and sometimes depending on the timing, you don't have to do anything. They'll stay with the sunflowers long enough for you to get your crop out of the field, those bell peppers out. But a lot of time we use them as a trap crop in the way that we're going to spray that trap crop. And so we only are hitting the sunflowers, which are not a crop that we're giving for, you know, human consumption. And I say spray, it can be any spray, it can be an oil, it can be organic, whatever it is. We're only treating that small amount, not having to treat our actual products. We don't have to worry about harvest times, anything like that. And then, you know, you don't have to worry. There's just so many things. So think of it more as that marigold is going to attract that. I use them for, with Japanese beetles. So Japanese beetles love marigolds. So I'm going to pull the Japanese beetles away from my other crops to the marigolds. I'm going to keep them in the marigolds. I know to go there to kill them. And I'm going to take the pressure off of my other crops, which maybe couldn't take those Japanese beetles as well as a marigold would. So when I think about companion planting, I think of them as a trap crop and a lot less as a repellent. Because when it comes down to it, there's tons of smells out there. Like, you know, they're going to... They're going to go around that marigold. They don't care, you know? So, so so you're telling me that stink bugs and Instagram influencers both drawn to fields of sunflowers. Essentially, they're the same thing. I see. Mm-hmm. So so in that case, the the thinking about the marigold and the tomato is that the marigold is going to draw the, the, the whatever the bugs are away mm-hmm. from the tomatoes. Mm-hmm. But if you just put a marigold right next to the tomato, it's going to eat the marigolds and then move on and eat the tomatoes. Right. And so- Sometimes these companion plants are used. We didn't. We haven't talked about indicator plants, which is sort of the same thing. But so indicator plants, people will use these in greenhouses. They use them outside. Like I said, I use them. I use marigolds for this because I know they're the number one food source for whatever problem I have. So Japanese beetles are a good one because everybody has a big issue with those. And so I know that I'm going to start scouting my marigolds. Remember, we're scouting still for those Japanese beetles. And so if I need to do any type of prevention, like if I'm going to net my cabbage or my broccoli, I know to net them before I have a problem because my indicator plant my has told me that you know these insects are here and it's time to do control measures on the valuable crops. Um, so that's another kind of form of companion planting is using one or two plants in a larger area as your indicators. Thoughts? Sorry, that's the burr that I get because I get a lot of questions on that. Yeah, the, and- the trap crop stuff. I mean, like as you're saying, it's it's a sometimes, and I'm not not folk wisdom has a lot to offer mm-hmm. and highly valuable. Agreed. But in in some cases, the the co- companion planting stuff can uh, can kind of veer into the magical thinking side of of how, how we're approaching this stuff. And so, having a little bit of a healthy respect for that, but at the same time. Uh, the trap crop stuff. I mean, it's validated. It is mm-hmm. there. There are there is research out there about it. And if you look and see, look up different trap crops for different types of things that you're growing. I know that like blue hubbards, for instance, are really susceptible and highly attractive to I think 
I think squash vine borers and maybe some other stuff too. And so that's a typical one that you'll see sometimes. And you'll also have, there's a whole other realm here of, of co-planting where you think about building habitat for beneficial insects that eat the insects that are problems on your crops. That's a whole mm-hmm. other thing that's separate from this and maybe a different conversation at some point in the future. But so in general, though, you're talking about a companion plant is is often referred to or is a trap crop that's often referred to as a companion plant and, and mm-hmm. with it on the insect side. Mm-hmm. That's good. Another- I, I hadn't thought of it that way. Another kind of a addition to this a discussion is that <clears throat> this concept of monocultures and the fact that uh, the way insects find crops, mm-hmm. you know, both by, by sight and smell, and it doesn't take much to confuse that. And it's this whole concept of ground level complexity, simply meaning a variety of crops thrown in together and non-related crops intermingled is harder for insects to key in on than one large monoculture. Mm-hmm. And and that's just an emerging field of research is pretty interesting. And there's a lot to that. And even years ago, I, I think I may, and it was just a personal observation. This is not research, but we had like a quarter acre of green beans or something that was off to the side of one of our fields. And it, we got busy with cattle and tobacco and other enterprises on the farm. And we did not have time to take care of these field of beans. And we've all, we always had a heavy insect pressure in this area and it was either Johnson grass or cocker, cocker burrs. If I can pronounce that, uh, Alexis that you're the, that is that the burr. back to your burr. Yeah. But uh, a lot of weeds grew up in this bean field and it was the best beans that we had ever grown. And we were like, huh, what in the world? We had no insect pressure for two years in a row. Weather and things let us off. We planted the beans, could not take care of them properly. And then when we went back to having perfectly clean fields. Now, this is anecdotal, but, you know, we, we talked to the extension agent at the time my father did years ago. And he discussed these same concepts that we're talking about now. And he thought it may have had something to do with just target confusion of the insects that were a problem at the time. But there's a lot of research that confirms that is that these large monocultures, just the opportunity for to have a pest come in and do uh, some major damage is increased when you just have a large planting of one thing. It's like an olfactory camouflage. Yeah, exactly. And it's a texture. It's a visual camouflage. It's both uh, is what they're finding, depending on the insect. So there's something to that, too. And um, I think people benefit from that sometimes. If nothing else, it's just that there's a bunch of different crops in the same area, so it's harder to key in on. So that 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 may be something, too, that's kind of related concept to what you guys are talking about. It's that real tree green bean uh, pattern. That's it. I'm go- we may need to patent that, the camo bean. <laughs> camo bean. Camo yeah. bean. Yeah, we'll, it's it's we'll, a new we'll, thing, guys. We'll have Mossy Oak and Realtree in a bidding war over and we will sell. we will sell like, you know, weed seeds to go along with it to camouflage it. We'll make that. It's the camo work. kit. We do the full-on hunting channel where like we're in a tree stand like whispering to each other, just watching the bugs not yes. eat or eat. <laughs> watching the, uh, the, the beetles just get confused. We're down. Bonus points if you right can. Now. Yes. <laughs> Bonus points if it's like something deer eat and it's, you know, they're eating the camo bean. <laughs> yeah. So. And we, we've caused one problem yeah. and solved another. Let's shut yeah. the podcast down and get started on product development. What are right we now? doing That's with it. our lives? Right now. So, another way companion planting can be used is through nitrogen fixation. So, mm. using legumes to fix that nitrogen for your 
ideal crop. Uh, so that's something that people will do. Could you, with, could you, you know, give me a couple of, couple of legumes? What are we talking? What is a legume? What are some examples? So any pretty much any of your beans. Uh, there are legumes that don't fix n- nitrogen. So like redbud trees are a legume, right? They create a bean pod. If you ever seen anything that produces something that looks like a bean pod is in the mm-hmm. legume family. So peas, beans, alfalfa is in the leg. Is is it all a legume or is it just a nitrogen? It mixer? is. It's a legume. Yeah. I don't really actually know what the seed of alfalfa looks like. So you know horticulture over here. But yeah, so anything that's going to produce clover, like a beet. Clover, beet. yeah. Yeah, clover mm-hmm. is another good one. Peas, Austrian winter peas in terms of mm-hmm. cover crops. I just, just sometimes vet, people are jumping. Is I feel like vetch might be. I don't know. I think vetch is. I think vetch is. Yeah. Josh is our behind the scenes researcher. <laughs> I think, <laughs> but, is black, you know, black locust technically? Uh, yes, it is. Harryvich is. I think it is. Black locust is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, it's, just, it's the, that that kind of bean and bean and pea and lentil yeah. vibe yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And, so, that, and that's one of the classic examples we always give is you get that secondary benefit of the nitrogen fixation there. Mm-hmm. Bringing in good producer. microbes, things like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people use um, these legumes as – Cover crops, those are incorporated in the soil, and then you're putting your stuff in later. But you can use them interplanted. Again, the, we go back to the three sisters, which we should just do a whole episode on those because I have learned so much more about them and how we've essentially downplayed my mom was all in fact, of that. She, my mom always did that system, even though it was a pain for me. And we didn't do it on the production side. did it on the large home garden side. But she did that every year because that's what her family did, and, and she loved it. Mm-hmm. And it, it worked well together. It was sort of a, it had a, it, one kind of helped the other kind of thing. And it was neat. And she always did that. She used that system and that's how she grew beans, corn, and and then used the broad leaves of a cucurbit, usually pumpkins to shade the ground. And, but yeah, she did that all the time. And I just thought it was a big hot mess. My dad and I are like, oh, we like monocultures. What is we this? We like straight lines. This, you, how are we supposed to till this? My mom's this like, that's not organized. <laughs> You don't have to till it because it shades itself. Yeah. yeah. So that was a, it's a neat system. So you've done a lot of research on that, Alexis. That, well, uh, I, I haven't say a lot. I just have reading. been like hearing a lot more reading, hearing whatever on, on how mm-hmm. essentially we just downplayed that entire system and there was so much more to it and all the, the, the microbes, the science behind it, uh, and mm-hmm. just how we are like, Oh, it's the corn, bean and well, pumpkin. We, and there, we it talked was more about than that. soil in a previous podcast and we talked about, you know, how do we create healthy soil and the crops like the three sisters, uh, uh, system is a good example of that where beans and corn, you know, take nutrients from different levels. Not only that, but their roots penetrate the soil differently and they have different, different microbes that are associated with those crops and it adds to soil diversity. And all of these things are pretty deep dives into soil benefits Mm -hmm. all of those things and i read something somewhere that talked about like one of the best reasons to grow a tap-rooted crop with a fibrous rooted crop is that the tap-rooted crop would go down deeper Mm -hmm. grab nutrients where the fibrous rooted crops could not get to they would bring it up into their plant tissue then decay go on the ground and then make that available at a more shallow depth and i thought that was really interesting that Mm -hmm. and that's assuming that you're leaving the biomass intact you're leaving it there for the tap-rooted crops, such as a cover crop. And I thought that was interesting. It was literally grabbing, some of these crops were grabbing deep level nutrients that other crops could not grab onto, bringing it up to the top of the soil surface and then 
kind of degrading back down into the soil and becoming available. It was pretty neat. Look at Ray just naturally moving us into interplanting. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Well, and you you brought it in so beautifully just thinking about root systems. So when you think about interplanting, these these crops we're putting right up next to each other. So you don't want to plant a fibrous root next to a fibrous root because they're going to compete. Uh, so you want to put in, you know, a root crop. You also want to think about sp- speed of the crop. Um, so I brought up radishes earlier. Radishes finish in like 30 days or something like that. Uh, so if you, if you put that in with a crop that maybe has 100 days um, before it's going to fruit, that those days to maturity, then you can get a lot of radish crop out of there, which means you're preventing weeds from building up while that slower 100-day crop is coming in. You're getting more out of that and you're not competing with your long-day crop. And so you got to really think about kind of that root system. Sunflowers are not a great, you know, we talk about them as they're a great trap crop. They're not really a great uh, interplanting crop because they are, not only are they they're fast, which usually would be a good thing, but they're also very, very fibrous. They take a lot of nutrients very quickly. Um, they're relatively high feeders as far as they're going to soak up, they're going to soak up nutrients a lot faster than some of your other crops will. They're just going to scavenge for it and find it before something else will. So it's not the best for interplanting, but it can be used on those outskirts as a companion. So are there, are there classic intercropping combinations or, or uses or like I'm looking for to choose from this list of slow growers and slow and low grow or fast and low growers and or is it kind of a choose your own adventure pairing no, things and figuring things out? When I'm out? working with home gardeners, I encourage them, first of all, uh, of course, is to, you know, put in keywords if they're going to do a general search, you know, cooperative extension service, and then put in keywords such as com- compatible companion plants garden. Because there are lots of good, now this is where I, my memory fails me, and I have to re, go back to charts, even after doing it for several years. But there's a lot of good charts out there that are pretty well you know, researched about crops that work well with each other, both as intercrops and as companion crops. And I just basically keep, I've got three or four of my favorite charts that I use, but I'd encourage listeners to go do that. You don't have to memorize it if you can go look it up. So go look it up. Extension service, companion plant chart, home garden, something like that. Keywords like that. And there's definitely great charts out there that detail some of the ways that you can mix and match these crops. And Alexis has already touched on some of those factors you need to consider, such as timing, growth height. You know, you don't want, you know, competition for sunlight or anything like Mm -hmm. that. And crops that can benefit from an understory shading. All of those considerations are in nice charts and they're, they're not too terribly hard to find. I would say you could probably generalize your leafy greens because they're usually pretty shallow rooted, pretty quick. They're, they don't take up a lot of space, right? They're only a foot tall sometimes around there. So you're saying like kales, lettuces, kales, lettuces. Yeah. Leaf lettuce, especially I would say away from your head lettuces though, uh, just because they're going to get large. They take a lot more time in there, but your leaf lettuces, your kales, spinach, stuff like that. Uh, and then a lot of your root crops will be fine. So carrots, I've, I've said radishes a hundred times because they're on my brain. I need to go buy some, but carrots, (laughs) uh, radishes, some of your aliums. So alien family is going to be your onions, garlic, you know, if you're growing flowers, there are alien drumstick aliens, uh, things like that. Now, those those do, in a sense, 
can repel. Uh, I know some people who use them on the edges of their high tunnels for voles and things like that because there's that onion smell above and above ground and underground and so they'll actually use them as kind of a, a deterrent almost like a natural fence and in that case it we do have some research that says that that's pretty effective so if you have vole or mole trouble in an area try maybe planting something in the alien put your garlic on the outside onions whatever i've, I've successfully used it to ward off vampires myself uh, I mean, nice. yeah. you're still I've with us. So. I, I've never been attacked. You're here. Huh? Yeah. I mean, here we are. I'm Italian, so it's just garlic runs oh, in my veins. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. But, and Steer then clear. your, and then your legumes where, you know, you can get, do something tall. So, you know, you can put your beans, your pole beans down the middle and then something short on the outside, like uh, your lettuce or, you know, if you put your peas are a great one. So peas are early season and your lettuce likes it cold too. And your spinach, so you put your peas down the middle of the bed and then right outside those peas, you can do your spinach uh, and your lettuce. And then you're getting two crops in the same bed space that you would normally only have one. So yeah, I would say those minute. are. I want to be the, I want to be the wet blanket here. Yeah, I know with the aliens. Oh, I and really the blah, want blah, to blah. because um, we have to acknowledge the bear in the room and he's 500 pounds and he's angry. And he's but, a. Before you go, He's right. I know. In, I know. I had her, COVID was rough on me, but let's. Uh... I know, Brett. I, I was not looking at you. I was looking at the Zoom camera. It's coincidental that I was staring directly into your eyes deeply, Brett. I'm so sorry. Here in the room, busted. I'm busted. But before you go all in on any of these uh, intensive, and I stress the word intensive, gardening techniques, where you're putting a bunch of plants really close together. Think about the general concept of what you're doing. You do have to really be careful, even though most of these things that, especially the ones Alexis just mentioned, are going to work well together. But think about, you know, you're affecting things like relative humidity and mm. in some cases, disease transmission. So the only thing that I would tell home gardeners, and I've worked with some gardeners that would, you know, that had just a little bit of gardening experience and they went all in on this system and did not have a good time of it for one reason or another. <laughs> it was not and a lot time. of it had to do with like molds and mildews and funguses that really, because the plants were so close together, they didn't manage sunlight properly or didn't manage airflow properly. So those are things to consider too. You're right. And not everything plays well I, together. Alexis conceded. She goes, okay, okay. Fine. I'm just like all about smashing stuff together, just as yeah, much well, as I can get out of an area. Sandwiches, I mean hoagies. That's yeah, that's my BLT, sandwich. Plan. Baby. Just smash it together, yeah. And uh, Alexis also, in addition to having a lot of experience, uh, mm -hmm. a lot yes. of experience yeah. growing stuff, yeah. is also I think a natural, very good grower, very attentive to plant plants Thank in you. general. Ugh. And so for her, she's dreaming of all the possibilities. But keeping in mind that we are ta talking to some beginners and some folks who aren't used to reading stuff yeah. and seeing and yeah. kind of having a sense of, of how that might work. I think that's a great point, Ray. And yeah. one, one from timeline-wise, so we talked about – I feel like we haven't hit time and I have a really good example of that. Sorry. I'm just very excited about interplanting. Timeline. So daffodils, right? Daffodils come up early. If you mm -hmm. – they come up before everything else. So you can put them in beds with other things that will come up later. So an example is yarrow. I don't know if people are familiar with yarrow, but a lot of your perennial crops uh, or annuals, it could be annuals too, but a lot of perennials because you know, you're know you not digging around in the bulbs. You can plant daffodils in there. They come up, they flower, you harvest, you let them be pretty, whatever. And then you get this growth of the yarrow or this other perennial crop. And so 
it's starting to flourish when the daffodils are naturally dying. So you hit that timeline where, again, you can have two crops in one bed. One is a bulb, one is a fibrous root system, and they play well together. So that's another way. Uh, I'm, I've started doing that, and that's uh, very exciting for me to be able to fit more into that bed without hurting anything. And like Ray was saying, like that, those mildews, those insects, like a lot of that can come in to play, but because these are thriving at completely different times, I don't have to worry about how they're close spacing down in there. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things too is that the, you don't have to go wholesale into the, mm-hmm doing every bed this way you can just like with most other things you can try one row that way and see if your weeding is reduced considerably Mm -hmm. and see if your you know the the yield is better or see if the insect pressure is lower or whatever it may be you don't have to and and i would say if you're doing this commercially on uh, and you're trying to integrate this i would experience that you do that to, to just see see if one row works well before you jump in and if that whole row gets taken out and then you look up and find that daffodils are a, a vector for a disease that affects a certain <laughs> crop that you grew, then yeah. you've lost that row and that's no big deal. But yeah, it did in general. These a concepts little bit are of, great. I yeah. love these concepts of, you know, and you're getting into pretty, pretty um, high level science when you involve yourself in these things, because you're blending so many concepts together and it's just really cool. And I think it's one of those things if you kind of incrementally kind of dip your toes in and then dive all the way in, you know, when you're ready to do that. It's so cool how much you can do with smaller spaces. And we talked about a lot. We've talked a lot about production on some of the other podcasts and getting the most out of your space, especially uh, folks that have things like high tunnels where you need to make those things productive. And I imagine, you know, people are probably looking for ways to make them more productive and maybe they can apply some of these concepts we're talking about today to get that extra productivity out of there by intercropping, companion planting, and get some of the secondary benefits maybe uh, from those things as well. Alexis, where you- Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say this can be done for agroforestry as well. So um, interplanting, it's a a much different scale, obviously, because you're going to give a tree a lot more room than you would give, you know, a tomato plant, but this is a this is something that can be used from the home garden scale all the way up to you know fruit, uh, fruit trees, you know nuts, those types of things. So sorry, anyways, I'm just I'm so excited. <laughs> where, so when you get excited about interplanting, where mm-hmm. have you gone to to find out more information or or learn about stuff or like where have you seen examples, come across examples? Because you clearly you have this knowledge that you've amassed over time. I'm just curious if you have thoughts on on where my, people might go to learn more. So I would say the starters, there's always some starter information. So our our UK pub home gardening, which of course, you know, anything usually home gardening can be used on a large scale as well. But um, our ID 128, which is home gardening in Kentucky has uh, that just kind of short little list about that. But honestly, a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about today and have tried to implement because it makes sense in my brain is I've just heard from other farmers. Uh, so other farmers who have been doing it a lot longer and they're like, you know, you know, a lot of them are on a really small scale and they just said, you know what, what, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to plant a few of these in here and if they don't work, I'll pull it out. And if, you know, if it does work, but uh, then it's great. And so that's where I've, I've heard that it's just other, other farmers. And that's why I think it's cool to bring this to you all this way because 
not everybody knows another farmer that they can reach out to, but it is kind of a a new I don't it's not a new idea at all, but it's like we're now putting it down on paper. Yeah, I was on the science and and why it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say I mean it, it based on my I in my life I've been lucky enough to travel a decent amount and I would say a lot of non-western or more accurately maybe non-eurocentric Mm-hmm. approaches to growing things do what we would call intercropping. They don't really, mm-hmm. they just, they just kind of do it's that. It's just the way it's done. Yeah. It's called cropping. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's called cropping. cropping. <laughs> it's called growing with us. Uh, the podcast, or no, that's the podcast. Um, Grow so, with us. And so, I mean, that, that, that definitely is, uh, as you say, it's not a new thing calling it intercropping and, and having charts and tables for it in this, in this particular way is newer maybe, but, um, so that's, I was just curious where, where you had found stuff out and it sounds like that network of, of producers is, is a good place uh, to find that. I heard it on a podcast to be honest with you. A farmer podcast. I found a a decent resource in the lead up to this episode that was, uh, it's from West Virginia extension and it's focused Mm -hmm. mostly on kind of, uh, insect management pairings. So this is more the companion planting as opposed to the intercropping, but it has a good list of, kind of horticultural crops, what you're trying to plant, and then good companions and also not good, what not to plant next to for that. Um, it, there are some extension on some of these topics. There's another one that we can probably add in as a link um, from Tennessee that kind of talks more about intercropping and kind of what, what are the important aspects of intercropping, which it lists there's four, right? There's spatial arrangement, how it's laid out, the density, uh, the maturity date, so you get the timing kind of angle, and the plant architect- architecture, as they call it. So root versus vining, that sort of a thing. Somewheres, I'll have to look it up. I forget exactly which Extension University has this publication, but it's always been really good for me, and it talks about companion planting, but it approaches it from they only refer- they only review Uh, practices that are backed up by research trials. And it's really interesting. They refute some things, but they confirm other things. But it's interesting in that it's all vetted, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, through the kind of the scientific process. And it's a really good review. It's basically a review of literature. And that's what makes it so interesting to me because companion planting particularly involves a lot of knowledge that's been passed down, which is wonderful. But it it kind of works within that realm of why does this work if it works and it confirms it through research trials. And I'll try to put that in the 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 show notes, um, the podcast description. I'll try to include that as well. But it's a really interesting quick read, about three or four pages. But it talks about, you know, the more common scenarios that work and why they work and which research supports that. It's really good. If you have questions about interplanting, you can ask us through um, our Instagram at Horticulture Podcast. Uh, you can direct message through there or grab one of our emails. One of our emails will be in the show notes as well. Uh, so if you've if you've got some specific questions, I mean that's what we'll, this is what we do is we we help people answer very broad, very specific questions. Uh, and we'd be happy if you're just like, I was thinking about throwing these two things together. Uh, we can give you our experience if we have any, uh, or hash through why or what problems you might face, uh, growing those two things together. So I'll take a crack at some of this up here. What do you think? 
Okay. So so I think one of the things that we did was we we introduced and and we differentiated between companion planting and interplanting. They're a spectrum, but I, I think of companion planting is sort of like teammates. Mm-hmm. They're working together, helping each other out. Interplanting feels a little bit more like roommates who get along really well. <laughs> they're sharing yeah. space. They're doing different things. They're, they're maybe complementary, but they're not directly helping each other. They're just taking up. They're the just not in each other's way. They're not in each other's way. I love that. In fact, they're complementary. You know, they're they're somebody does the dishes, somebody cleans the bathroom, and everything's everything's good. So, the advantages to doing either of these might be some variation on pest control, disease management. Uh, it might be covering the soil surface to keep things cool or to keep weeds down to reduce the weeding need for weeds. It could just be fitting more stuff into a smaller space if you're an intensive grower of some sort. But in general, there can be these complementary relationships between plants. And if we can pair them together based on their strengths and weaknesses, we may be able to, especially in intensive systems, home gardening systems or small scale commercial systems, uh, get more by doing better by the soil and by the environment that we're growing in. So is that, does that sum us up pretty good? It's beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Again, if you have if you want to hear more about this kind of topic, Alexis plug the the Instagram and the and the email, but really please do reach out to us. We love hearing from you. Even if you just say I listen and enjoy it, we really really love hearing from you. Again, we're trying to decide what the listener group is going to be called. We we threw out True Leaves last time, which sounds very cultish as I reflect on it now. <laughs> How do you um, think about it? It's <laughs> like we're all going to have the matching column. hoodies or something. I don't know. That seems a little a little over the line. But, the uh, are you our, like our plant peeps? I always just call them people, up, my plant so. peeps. Plant peeps. But I like that. Peeps. So yeah, let my us let peeps. us know what you want to be called. And or if you just, def- like most horticultural topics, you just defy categorization. <laughs> let us and know that too. It. We're just going to change yeah. it a lot. So, But yeah, thanks thanks very much for all the support. It means a whole lot. And we uh, we look forward to hearing from you soon. All right. Well, we will catch up with you next week. Uh, As we grow this podcast, we hope you grow with us. And so join us next time. Have a great one.